0: I'm excited, Johnny. I've really been enjoying our deep dive into storytelling, and today's guest has given one of my favorite TEDx talks of all time.
1: Yes, David is great. And what I really enjoy, and and the audience is going to enjoy today, is just how well he can
0: compartmentalize the process of storytelling. And of course, take the science behind telling compelling stories and put it together in a framework that we all use. This is the Art of Charm podcast, the show where we bring you actual tips and strategies on how to better connect socially, boost your emotional intelligence, and of course, tell engaging stories to crush it in business, love, and life. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and of course, tough lessons into a concise curriculum each and every week. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Now, not only have we been doing this podcast with great tips and scientifically proven social strategies with amazing guests, we've also been delivering live and online advanced emotional intelligence training programs for over a decade. I can't believe it's been 13 years. If what you've learned on this show has helped you in your life, imagine what one of our tailored programs could do for you. To learn more about these advanced social skills programs, go to the bootcamp for more details and to sign up for our newsletter. Also, we are now doing corporate training. So if you
1: are interested in our team, including myself and AJ, coming to your office to work on team building, conflict resolution, and networking, send us an email at AJ at theartofcharm.com. And remember, a happy office is a productive office.
0: Take your life and career to the next level now with our coaching. And just before we start, we'd also love to take the opportunity to reach out to our audience members who work in the psychology fields, either as a psychologist or a therapist. We have some really awesome projects we're working on, and we'd love your input. You can drop me a line at ajattheartofcharm.com. Thank you for tuning in. Let's kick off the show. Today, we're talking with David J.P. Phillips. Now, David delivers worldwide training on communication and presentation skills. And what we particularly love about his work is that it's focused on the latest research in neurology, psychology, and even biology. A few years ago, David did a study on 5,000 public speakers to analyze what makes a storyteller exceptional, and we'll talk about a few of his many findings. His three TEDx talks are among the most viewed TEDx talks on storytelling, and certainly some of my favorites. Hello, and welcome to the show, David. How did you get started in storytelling, especially the research behind it?
2: Well, my passion has been communication my entire life. For me, that is the most single most important subject any human can learn. And about five years ago, I just started being really mesmerized by the effects of storytelling. I got to think, how can it be so powerful? It's almost like it's mind-blowingly powerful. And whenever I find anything that is Remotely, mind-blowingly powerful. I just have to (laughs) dig into it.
0: Absolutely. And I know for us this month, we've been talking a lot about the importance of emotions in storytelling, how to become a better storyteller. And a lot of our listeners and our clients ask us exactly that. How can we strengthen our storytelling skills so that Hmm. we can have a compelling interaction that that becomes memorable? Because we've all been influenced by that one story that we held Hmm. on to and we loved a lot of us don't feel that strong in this department.
2: Mm, yeah,
0: that's true. And how do we get practice in developing out our storytelling skills?
2: Well, I would say that my, my recommendation is as with anything in communication, that is when I do training in communication, I do training in storytelling, people think that when they're on stage, that's when they're supposed to practice. <laughs> well, that is entirely incorrect. So where you're supposed to practice is your everyday life. Your every single conversation, every meeting by the coffee machine, by the car, wherever you are, that's when you're supposed to practice it. And then what happens is if you could become brilliant there, you are simply brilliant on stage. Now, the, my practical tip for what you should practice is the following, that whenever you're in a situation and it's at least remotely funny or remotely weird, or remotely strange or anything that sticks out, you should look at that situation from the four basic steps of storytelling. And the four basic steps of storytelling, as I teach, is a prep, background, development, and conclusion. So whatever strange situation you're in, you just form it in in those four boxes in your head as you're standing there. And then you see, can I make that funny? Can I make that interesting? Can I make that even more weird or whatever? And then you try it on someone and they are like, ooh, maybe they laugh. And then you go, yeah, that's cool. Then you just tweak it a bit and tweak it a bit and tweak it a bit and tweak it a bit. Boom, you have a good story. That is the best way to learn storytelling. You do that every single day. My God, you'll be a storyteller in no time.
1: I think, you know, lots of great things happen to us on a daily basis. And in those moments, we have that chuckle to ourselves. I mean, those are opportunities to make a mental note. And and what's great about this is I started doing this a few years ago. It's like we have these devices in our pockets now, and I have a running pages of just interesting things and my perspective on it and why it stuck out to me that day so that. You know, when I do go back, when I'm looking for stories, when I'm looking for anecdotes to to showcase something, I have these things where I'm the main character, but it's happened to me. And that perspective allows for others to put themselves in my
0: position and experience those things.
2: Absolutely. That's a brilliant, that's a brilliant thing. Just copy paste that. That's superb.
0: Well, the other point that you make that's so important is is reading the audience and actually practicing on people to see their response because sometimes we can think a story is great when we only share it with ourselves and we're telling it in our head but we don't yep. know how that story is going to sound until we actually start sharing it with people
2: true absolutely yeah Now that's the thing that's the way you learn storytelling and uh, i like that idea by just writing down the different situations you're in and the scenarios that happen to you in your everyday life, and you just package it. But I think the, the thing is to package it in real time where you are there with these four steps, because that is what really brings storytelling to life. So let's and, uh, break down
0: yeah. those four steps the yeah. prep, the background, and mm-hmm. obviously understanding storytelling to a great degree, it's important that we allow the audience to know where this is transpiring, where this story is beginning, and and a little bit of that backstory. So what is the prep?
2: Yeah, okay, so I'll just give you a real-time story then. You just called me, let's see here, 22 minutes ago. I was at home, I was sitting with my kids, I was looking through a photo album, and I thought that we were gonna go uh, live at 6.30. Okay. So that's a story for you. So I'll tell it the incorrect way first, which goes like this. I was at home. I was looking at the photos and then I saw that. And then I panicked. I ran to the office. I came here and then I got everything together. And now I'm here with you guys. That's a bad way of telling a story. Better way of telling a story is, okay. So imagine I'm at home. I'm sitting there with my kids. I'm looking through the photos and I'm all like, my empathy. And uh, I'm feeling things for these photos. And then suddenly, the last thing you want in the world, the last thing, you get a phone call from the US. You're go, like, Oh, shit. Something's wrong. Something's up. I've missed something. You know, that feeling of panic. So I, I, I tremble on my voice, I pick up the phone. And there's someone on the other side. And they go like, Hey, where are you? And I'm like, Oh, crap. I've got to run. And I just run out of the house. I run over the yard, I come in, I rig everything up. <laughs> and and the terrible part about all of this is that when I sit down, I've got all this stuff up and I think, okay, we're going to go live now. You guys, you want me to turn on my video camera and, hey, do you see what I look like? This is not my professional me, but <laughs> sometimes you just have to play the game, right? So I'm sitting here now and... Uh, it's brilliant. Thanks for having me. It is such a pleasure seeing you. Thanks. Okay, so that's a better way of telling the story. The prep is I'm sitting at home with my kids. The development is I'm running over the, or the background is I'm run, running over the yard. The development is what happens here. And the conclusion is that I'm happy with, to be with you guys.
1: What's great about this is giving it the first example. And you gave yep. us all the data points. And mm-hmm. we can all understand that, but there's certainly no emotions involved. But what did you add for the emotions that kick in? Well, I immediately felt the emotions kick in when you mentioned I was sitting there with my children. Mm-hmm. We were looking at some old photos. So now... We understand what, how precious the time is with spending with our children, looking at old photos where you're probably telling some stories to your children and eliciting some emotions from them and, and creating this environment. We can all understand what a surreal and beautiful moment that is, only to be all of a sudden alerted that you were missing an appointment and you were in the wrong place to now have to drop everything that is going on and running to the office and, and of course, prepping yourself for the interview that's going to be at hand. I mean, there are so many emotional bids there that I felt shift and engage uh, from both stories and just that small sample.
0: Let's talk about this angel's cocktail that you just discussed, right? Because these... Four signals that you cover in your Angel's Cocktail are so important in in creating this dynamic in the story to allow the audience to be fully engaged. Can you unpack Mm -hmm. those again for the audience?
2: We have four basic signaling substances. Let's say five signaling substances and hormones which control our emotions. They are our emotions. Our emotions are signaling substances and hormones, chemicals in our brain. What's interesting is depending on which one has a high concentration, it will influence your psychology. So if you have a high concentration of oxytocin, you will tend to be more generous, more feel more empathy, and you'll uh, feel more bonding with the person. And the second one is serotonin. Uh, Serotonin is produced when we feel pride, when we feel significant. So any story which increases serotonin will make the other person feel more significant, increase their self-worth, and they'll feel more pride. The third one is dopamine, which is expectation. And it's easily the most important one. So I won't take that one now. I'll go to number four instead. We'll cover endorphins. Endorphins is something that just makes you less critical and it'll make you a happier person, and you'll be more willing to listen to whatever is being said, more accepting. Now, the last one is testosterone, and testosterone will make you more risk-taking. So if I, in a story, induce testosterone in you, you will become more risk-taking as a human being. Okay, I think that was that, or maybe we should go back to dopamine and just describe that just a little bit more. Yeah, please. Can't leave that, Can't leave that hanging there. Okay, so dopamine is created when you get cliffhangers. Dopamine is behind all motivation. So I'll put it like this. Every single time you sit in an audience and you lose focus from whoever is speaking or presenting, and if you're turning this pot off, it means that you are getting dopamine from somewhere else because you are addicted to it. So dopamine creates focus, creativity, memory. focus. Creativity, memory, and motivation. Would you say that those are important things in any story or any presentation? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, because just imagine that the next time you deliver a presentation, nobody's focused, motivated, nor creative, nor do they remember anything that you just said. Yeah, so that's the reason why we turn off TV series. That's the reason why we turn off movies. It's because we simply, we're not stimulated enough by the desire to know what's happening next.
1: We can all understand the importance of of these and with and with dopamine being able to create them and i think a lot of us look for opportunities to get more motivation or to get more focus and get better memory throughout the day with the technology that is in front of us do you see any issues with our dopamine re receptors being either overly stimulated and it's going to take more and more now or is it simply desensitized to a lot of Uh, different stimulus.
2: Yeah. Well, our dopamine receptors are overstimulated. We're desensitized absolutely to a certain extent. I think the problem today is that our attention span is so, 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 so much shorter than it was before Uh, in, in the past, in the good old days. Yes. It was way, way, way longer. So the problem today is that we can get dopamine injections like immediately by just bringing up our phone, checking social media, mm-hmm. checking Candy Crush or TikTok or whatever. You can just imagine you, every single time you do that, you bring out a needle and you go in your veins every single time, every single time you do that. And I call dopamine the fabricated happiness. So dopamine is fabricated happiness. And the less happier you are with your life, the more you, are, you want dopamine because it gives you that quick, quick hit. But the problem is that you go, tss, ah, life is beautiful. And then you go, brrr, and you go, tss, ah, brrr, tss, ah, and that is your life. It goes up, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. So yeah, the problem with that is that it is so hard to hold someone's attention when presenting speaking or even during a pod show and it, the attention span is getting smaller and, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because all these facebook youtube did you know that youtube 72 percent of everything that you watch is is uh, recommended by the artificial intelligence mm-hmm. engine yep. it's insane and it's optimized for you to look at things that ha- grabs your attention as fast and as much as possible but you know what I usually say this, the people living today who will die within the next 20 to 30 years, that is our last generation of storytellers. It is the last generation of storytellers, those who lived before the television came by me, those who 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 listened to their grandfathers and grandmothers when they told stories. This is an art which is dying. But what's, and what's sad with that is that I can have kids in front of me, totally addicted to TikTok, totally addicted to YouTube, but they will drop their phones. And listen to a story, because it kicks ass with anything out there.
0: So looking at those molecules, and obviously their importance in generating emotions, how can we as storytellers elicit those emotional responses and those chemicals in the audience?
2: You can, well, let's start with the most important one, which is dopamine. You should add hooks to your story, which means that in your story, you should say that something is coming up, but not exactly what... A simple example could be that a very short story is of a man who got out of bed. But as he was getting out, things seemed to be just a little bit too quiet around him. He didn't bother much, but he walked towards the door. And the door was open and he knew that he'd closed it when he'd gone to bed and nobody was at home then. But still it was too quiet. So he walks out. He walks up to the balcony and looks down. And there he sees exactly what he knew that he'd never wanted to see in his entire life. But it was there, straight in front of him. And there you go. That's it for you. <laughs> yeah, what's there? <laughs> mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. hanging on yeah. cliffhanger.
0: Okay, so okay, cliffhangers so yep. elicit that focus, motivation, better memory. What can mm-hmm. we do with oxytocin to elicit that?
2: Uh, oxytocin is bonding with a character or an object. bonding with a character or an object and uh, that's the reason why you have so much junk in your cellars and in your attics it's because you've bonded with the items there you feel for them through oxytocin and it feels like you get ripped apart when somebody would throw them away so yeah you would uh, you would create you would create a character which we would feel for and you know what's almost terrible with oxytocin it is that we fall for it and we crave it so badly we can even bypass our morals and ethics. I'll give you an example from Breaking Bad. You know the show Breaking Bad? Yeah, of course. Okay, so people all over the world, they've been watching Breaking Bad. What's sad with that is that people behind the TV screens, they're going like, yeah, yeah, come on, brew more meth, man, go, yeah, brew it, yeah, brew big an industry, build an industry, become a magnet, become a drug king, shoot the police, yes, just win over them. You can own this, yes. And, and I know this is, this is smuggled to kids and kids die from it, but still brew more. And we're on the other side and we're rooting for the bad guy like we're insane. And that is the power of oxytocin. If you as an author, you write for, the, in this case, what was his name? Uh, the, the main character of Breaking Bad. Yeah. And what did he have? Well,
1: he had cancer. Cancer,
2: cancer. yeah. So this story wouldn't have worked if he didn't have cancer. Um, but because we feel empathy for him through the cancer, uh, we, can, you know, we, can, we can bypass other thing, bad things that he do because you know, it's at the end of his life and so on and so forth.
0: So that bonding, that connection is what elicits oxytocin. And endorphin, creativity, relaxation, focus, how can we elicit this in a story?
2: Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm really sorry, guys, but... Uh, Uh, God, uh, uh, I think I I forgot. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. I can't remember. Um, Yeah, if if we can just restart, uh, I could. uh, I could remember for you. Well, that's oxytocin for you. Okay, I just wanted to give you an example. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Let's move over to endorphins. Okay, so you're laughing at the moment, which means that I induced endorphins in you, which is great. So that is uh, the simple thing with endorphins. Just make people laugh, tell jokes. Adding some humor. Add humor to your stories, yeah.
0: And testosterone risk-taking, that one seems a little more challenging. Testosterone,
2: yeah, that could be challenging. But no, you just tell hero stories, really. So I could tell you a hero story. And uh, what's good with that hero story is that it induces both um, testosterone and serotonin. It goes like this. The man was 20 years old. He looked back at his life and he uh, concluded that this was not what he intended. This is not what he wanted. At 15 years of age, he'd been thrown out from home after fighting with his brother. He'd made a woman pregnant. He had a child. The woman had left him. He'd... um, put a company into bankruptcy. And he said to him, said in a self-sad voice, "This was not what I intended in my life." But he was a smart and clever guy. He wasn't religious specifically, but he loved the idea by having words and laws to live by. So what he did? he took a piece of paper and wrote down the 12 things that he wanted to become. And at the top, he wrote the dates or the, or the days of the month. So it was kind of two axes. One axis with things he wanted to be, and one axis with the days of the month. He walked over to his friend and said, look at this, look at this, this is brilliant, what a method I've come up with. And the friend was far from happy. The friend said, "Ah, oh, I don't know, that's uh, silly. Why is it silly? Well, because you're none of them. Uh, well, that's the problem. That's why my life looks the way it looks. And the friend said, hey, if you're going to do this, you should add a 13th, because my God, you need it. Add humility. And this guy went, mm, humility, tasted it. Hmm, yeah. Okay, cool. We'll go with humility. This uh, guy was far from humble because what he wrote, he wrote be- behind each of these, he wrote what they were meant. And behind humility, he wrote no less than Socrates or Jesus, which is far from humble, I think. And then he began life. He became an author. He became an inventor. And a true story, he... Invented the iron stove. He invented the uh, uh, the bifocal glasses, the swim feet, and the lightning rod. But all that pales in comparison to when we know now that he founded the first library and the first insurance company in the U.S. But all that pales in comparison. Because he also is seen to be one of the fathers or the main father behind the American Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. But that also pales in comparison that he was the trusted advisor of the three first presidents of the United States of America, George Washington, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Now, when uh, he died at 82, he'd written in his diary at 81, Benjamin Franklin wrote, because that was his, was his name, You can find him on the $100 bills in the U.S. today, and he's seen to be one of the most influential characters of the U.S. history. He wrote in his diary when he was 81, I became what I wanted because one day I chose who I wanted to be. So, fellow listeners, when did you choose who you wanted to be? Because apparently it can have a tremendous effect. The end. That's fantastic.
0: So how did we elicit testosterone and serotonin in that story?
2: Well, Probably more serotonin, but you get a feel for that. You go like, wow, that's a pretty cool person, and you feel also, you don't feel envy, but you feel that you want to go home and you maybe you just want to do something systematically different in your life because you you sense that you have a power over your, your over your life. So I would say that that would be it. but then testosterone is always released when you win. And he won, right? But if I wanted to do, induce pure testosterone, I would probably give you more of a an even bigger success, uh, like and and more masculinity, more nakedness, more hardcore, more risk.
0: So, like a warrior story, a hero's journey.
2: Yeah, like a hero warrior.
0: And obviously, looking at these stories and their importance in communication. Personally, we know they connect us and, and bind us together, but they're also used in business. So you look at presenting, ideas, selling, pitching, trying to go to networking events. We talked about this in networking last month. And I feel like a lot of us sort of don't view them the same. And, and what is your view on that? Whether we're personally telling stories or we're telling, sharing these stories professionally, do these rules still apply?
2: Absolutely, yeah. No question about it, Now. No question about it. Hey, a quick tip for you is this: uh, just as you did there with the example where you wrote down events that happened to you, what you can do is what I would recommend every single person on this pod to do, and you too, write down the stories that you tell. You can just use the title; you don't have to do word them word by word, just the titles. And you use Excel or or something similar. You write down all your stories in one column, and then. The power comes when you start indexing them. So the powers that people laugh at index them as endorphins. People that the stories that people feel empathy for index them as oxytocin. People that, well, the stories that people feel uh, success and pride in index them as serotonin. Stories that people feel that they they cannot l- stop listening to. You always got their absolute, absolute anticipation. I can tell you one of those later if you want to. But one of those super hardcore dopamine stories, then you just, um, you classify that as dopamine. And if you tell the stories where you, after you've told the story, people are like really hungry. They're, you can see them in their eyes that they want to do something. They want to win something. You classify that as testosterone. And you do that with every single one of your stories. And imagine that you have 100 stories That means that you now have 100 more or less weapons in your pocket. Because if you walk into a crowd and you go like, "Mm, mm, these need oxytocin mm, and they might need a bit of endorphins. Let's see what we have. I'll take this one and I'll take this one. And then you just launched them at them in the first 10 minutes.
0: And how do we make that angel's cocktail? How do we mix those together?
2: You you mean the entire thing?
0: Yeah. How do we create that angel's cocktail that you talk about in your TEDx talk?
2: Oh, well, it would just be a story which combines all of them. So a story which builds anticipation is dopamine, a story where you are attracted to the character or the object, which is oxytocin. And it ends with a hero kind of grand finale, which is serotonin, and maybe a laugh here and there, which is endorphins. Yeah, and that would be your angel's cocktail. But I would recommend not mixing angel's cocktails. I would recommend taking the story that you indexed which is high on one or two of the signaling substance and launch that at them. They don't need complete angels cocktails. that is just that's just a synonym uh, for if you should, you know if you want to entertain someone, the power mm-hmm. lies in picking them
0: right. So understanding the underlying emotions of the stories, what they elicit in the audience, categorizing them so that you yeah. have them available when you need them. And then of course practicing them right and paying attention to the audience as you develop out these stories so that you have one for each of those categories absolutely most definitely and one of your other famous tedx talks is the death of the powerpoint and we think (laughs) about presenting in business we think about presenting on stage oftentimes we are using a powerpoint and we do change our view of sharing stories and connecting with the audience when there's slides behind us and there's words on the screen. We talked a little bit earlier about this. It is no different. Whether you're telling stories personally, whether you're telling stories at a networking event, or even you're on stage, we need to be eliciting emotions in the audience. We want their attention. We want their focus. How can we do that when PowerPoint is involved?
2: (laughs) Yeah, good point. All right. So I would say that you can still kick ass with dopamine. Uh, So a couple of quick tips is the following. Um, Imagine that you bring out a slide and you go, okay, this one. We could probably skip this one. Oh, no. Oh, I know. You can't really read what's on it. But uh, yeah, so uh, I'll just point here. Yeah, that's a bad way of (laughs) of delivering a slide. Okay, so that is bringing the dopamine down to to the floor now a better way the magical way of delivering a slide is what i call sell your slide and it goes like this just prior to delivering the slide you go oh guys girls the next slide coming up is my personal favorite it summarizes everything in such a beautiful way so just hold on to your seats here we go boom And the dopamine is sky high. People go like, you can't do that every single time. You can't go, next slide is my personal favorite. They'll they'll carry you away if you do that for more than like two slides. But you can still sell slides. You can go like, okay, so we've had had a look at the theory. Let's have a look at a super exciting example of how this works. And then you bring that out. So dopamine can be used by selling slides. So that's one there's so many ways to create dopamine in PowerPoint, but I right. don't know how much you want me to talk about it, but that's one key way. Well, that's a great
0: example. Are there other emotions in, in your PowerPoint that you feel are important?
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. The second one would be just value everything that you say. You know, like you go, like, ah, oh, look at this number. That's a bit worrisome. Ah, oh, I hate this number. Look at this. This excites the heck out of me. Do you see that number? That's eight to six. It's incredible. When you go, like, ooh i don't know you know i'm feeling really really bothered by this number this is really getting to me and it's the end of the month i don't know so yeah value your numbers because every single time you do that you transfer your emotion to the people listening so why i'm saying this and why i just wanted to jump into this is because you guys you're talking about emotion and we're talking about uh, the signaling substance and hormones Mm -hmm. why this why this is absolute core why this is more important than anything Is because if you walk into a meeting room, a conference room, a presentation, and you do not elicit an emotion into those who who are listening, you will not move them. You will not make them take a decision. They will nod. They will smile. They will sign. They will walk out of there and something else will attract their emotion and boom, they're off in that direction. If you fail to create that, you fail to move people. And that is why emotion in PowerPoint is so important. And that is why these signaling substances are so important to pick.
1: Well, we've certainly seen it uh, many times. And a a lot of the clients we have can be very overly analytical. And we'll talk about sometimes when they're going into a meeting where they're putting together their PowerPoint presentation. And I will laugh because at the end of the day, they've put most of their efforts in the, the slides and the and the, and making sure <laughs> that the facts are up there, the numbers all work out. out. And 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 I can't count how many folks that we've had in here who do pitches for a living or do marketing are like. Throw all that out. (laughs) Let's make sure that you walk in busting with emotion and to elicit whatever you need. You're going to have to first feel it in yourself. It never ceases to amaze me because, you know, of course, if you're going to school for this, it's going to be all the data points that that you think is going to drive this home. But in actuality, you're not in the room if your data points didn't make out. You're in the room because they want you to get them emotionally excited about what you have to offer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. yeah. With Touché. emotions
0: driving decisions, it's important that we at least pay attention to them when we're presenting, when we're sharing stories. Of course, they connect us. And in your TEDx talk on death by PowerPoint, we'll link it up in the show notes. You go into great detail around some slide structure for all of you who are interested in presenting, especially slides. Why do you think people put so much emphasis on the slide deck itself and, and don't pay attention to the emotion and, and realize the delivery?
2: Because we believe that we are rational human beings <laughs> and that our decisions are rational and logical. And if they are, uh, well, then we can focus on, on logic. And therefore we build slides which are truly logical. I think if we, were, if we truly would have a sense that our decisions are driven by emotion, if we knew that for real and we could feel it all the way into our bone, we would build presentations differently. But we just, people just don't relate to it. It's like I said, 60%, they believe that every single decision they take is rational or driven by rational.
1: Well, we could see it in a lot of our, the the entertainment that is around us is certainly going to en- uh, elicit a lot of emotion. But even the information that's presented to us, if we look at all the the political strife going on kind of everywhere, but it's all emotionally driven. Uh, there may be some data points behind it, but there's going to be a narrative that gets you riled up in order for you to buy into whatever these
0: sides are, are peddling.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think yeah. the, the other key point in all of this, and, and I know you, you talk about it in your course as well, is first impression. We talk about it in our boot camp how important it is to set the tone with a great first impression. Of course, it's going to hook the audience. It's going to get their attention to whatever you're presenting or even sharing stories. What are your thoughts around creating a compelling first impression and its impact in our storytelling?
2: Yeah, absolutely super important. I call it the halo effect and the hell effect, or I call it, well, it is commonly referred to that you can make a first impression in two ways, hell or halo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, interesting studies have shown that if you, if you are interviewing a person for a job and they are three minutes late, that will impact your, your entire perspective of this person during the entire interview. So yeah, uh, the hell and the halo effect is incredibly important. So I put a lot of... I put a a lot of effort into making the best possible first impression that I can. Not overdoing it, but still making it as good as possible.
0: And when you're on stage and you have to present, whether it's slides or share a story or, or give a keynote, what are you focusing on in terms of your first impression to engage the audience?
2: Uh, well, I run a seven-step psychologically beneficial structure and I, I, I hit every single point of those every single time I present. And I, I see to that I know my structure and I know my beginning, my first three minutes flawlessly. It's like I could, you could wake me in the middle <laughs> of the night and I would go like, could from, boom, 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 boom. you could pick any of my keynotes and I could do my seven steps in a split second. That's what's important to me. And uh, that's when I do keynotes or presentations. If I meet a person, like I'm meeting you or I'm in a one to one meeting, uh, my beginning would be different, of course. I would listen a lot more. Right.
0: And when you're talking about that first three minutes, what is the key focus for you?
2: Uh, building, uh, well, I listen into which signaling substance they're low in, and then I counteract that with bringing up the signaling substance that I think they or I desire in order for the meeting to have a great outcome.
0: So there's reading the room, obviously some emotional intelligence there to understand where the signals are high and low for the audience, and then working to manage those to your advantage.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a simple one would be, say that a person is, I'll yeah, one example. Um, I had a meeting about a year ago. I went into the room. There were three gentlemen sitting in there they were all highly ethos individuals. So very strong, very cocky. They didn't really want me there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what I had to do is I had to break their ethos to begin with, bring their serotonin down to normal levels. And you can't just go in and and give someone a tell-off when you're going into a meeting like that. So you have to do it indirectly. So the way I did it was that I walked into these guys and I said, uh, well, i i, I uh, shook their hands i greeted them i gave them a compliment of some sort and just before i sat down i said just before so i so that i don't forget just before i sit down just so i don't forget I, I i was sitting outside and while i was waiting for you i read through your brochure and in your brochure it says that you work with um, these different types of pedagogy now as, as you know as well as as well as i know it's called that the word is androgogy because obviously you teach adults and you don't teach children. So I just wanted you to know that because whoever wrote that copy, just have them check that just as a helpful thing. Okay, let's get on with the meeting. Now, obviously, they were the guys who wrote this, but obviously they didn't know that pedagogy is teaching children and androgogy is teaching adults. And I indirectly give them gave them a, um, I lowered their serotonin, their confidence. So yeah, exactly.
0: identifying that that mistake for them, <laughs> calling it out indirectly in yeah. a way that doesn't attack them, lowers their serotonin, lowers that cockiness, balances out the room.
2: Yeah. So that could be one, one way to do it. Yeah.
0: So understanding, it sounds a lot of whether we're telling stories or, or giving presentations or pitching, that the understanding of the audience is the most important step i feel like a lot of us when we're trying to memorize our stories or memorize our presentations we're thinking about all the slides uh, oftentimes we're not paying close attention to the audience what are some of the uh, key things that you're focusing on when you're paying attention to the audience is there body language signals that you're noticing
2: so two answers to that when i build my ted talks they are roughly 18 minutes long It took Mm -hmm. me 70 hours per TED talk to build and rehearse. So I do not listen to my audience for a single second when I deliver those. I just, I know and presume their reaction and action to every single thing that I'll be saying because it's pre-planned. And I don't deliver the TED talk for the people in the room. Even like in Stockholm, there was a thousand people listening. I do not deliver it for them. I deliver it for YouTube and doing that is just different. So, yeah, that is one version. If you have 70 hours to prepare an 80 minute presentation in your life, if you don't, it's listening to the audience. And my third TED talk is called The 110 Steps of the 110 Techniques or the 110 Steps of Excellence, where I spent seven years studying 5,000 speakers and presenters. And I think I became the first person in the world who detailed every single communication skill human beings use when we communicate. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen anyone else do it. And what's interesting with this is that why I want to do, what I want to come to is this, that have you ever walked into a room and you immediately feel that you don't trust the person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And probably the opposite, where you've met a person and you go like, ah. Oh, God, I love you from almost the first instance. You've been there? Yeah. Okay. So after studying these 5,000 individuals, I I learned to understand that we have five layers of communication. And uh, the five layers are facial expression, a word, voice, body language, and gesture. Now, what's interesting, when you walk into a room where you can't trust a person, there is a discrepancy in their communication. There's something not lining up between these five. To an example could then be that they say, hey, so good to see you. And you can hear in their voice that, yeah, it's fairly okay, you know, it's good. But their facial expression is not saying the same thing as their voice. And when there's a discrepancy in any one of these five layers, you immediately sense it. You don't know what it is. I can because I've broken it down to 110 different things. (laughs) But a normal human being wouldn't be able to pinpoint exactly what is wrong in this situation. So when looking at the audience, you should read into the audience uh, in regards to these five layers. Have a look at their facial expression. Have a look at their body language. Have a look at their gestures. What's interesting then is that they have to be in synchronicity. I.e. if they got folded arms... And at the same time, they're smiling. That doesn't mean that they're negative. So these have to be, the more they are in synchronicity, the more true you can read a person. So underst- are you,
0: yeah. yeah, understanding those five layers and the more congruence there is between the five, the more accurate that reading of that person is. So if someone has crossed arms and a big smile and those are the only two signals you're seeing, you can't really say that they're either closed off or, or they're happy.
2: Absolutely not. No, they...
0: And looking at obviously something like a TEDx talk, even in the 70 hours of prep, I'm assuming you were paying close attention in your delivery multiple times to read and sense how the room is going to react. And after practicing it enough times, you can start to make those assumptions that these are the moments that people laugh at. These are the moments that people are really engaged. These are the moments where I know I'm, I'm going to get their full attention, et cetera.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: So obviously, understanding, making a great first impression, understanding how these chemicals influence our emotions and working to the best of your abilities to evoke these emotions in your audience. And a lot of practice is how we can Mm -hmm. become more effective storytellers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say that to simplify it, go with the first thing that I said. Look at all the situations in your life, package it in those four structures where you have the prep, the background, the development and the conclusion. If that is the only thing that you practice, it'll make you 500% or a 1,000% of a better storyteller within just six months. And then you can add the other layers on top of that. But that'll make the, the biggest difference.
1: But I think the other thing that most people need to realize is, yes, this is a skill that can be developed, but it's, it is within all of us. We have evolved through storytelling. Oh, yeah. We have learned through storytelling and so for all the times that we hear well okay i'm not a good storyteller or for all the times that we hear well i don't have any good stories to tell that is just untrue you just haven't given yourself those opportunities to bring out what is already there inside
2: yeah absolutely and to de-dramatize it just don't call it storytelling for god's sake just just retell a daily thing that happened to you in that structure that i just mentioned and boom you have a story it's not that is simple and just a really quick one as well as you haven't asked me about that how how long does something have to be in order to be a story okay so the shortest story ever written was <laughs> uh, written by ernst hemingway it's six words and it goes like this it's a sad one it's oxytocin okay are you ready for it yeah goes like this Baby shoes, never worn, for sale. Okay, so that's a story. Because what happens when I tell you that story is that it puts images in your head. Mm -hmm. And those images are associated to emotions and references and associations that you have to children who may not have been born. And those emotions are then created through your own fantasy and your own memories. I didn't need to create them in my story. I simply placed the words in your head. So then to argue that stories can be even shorter, what can they be even shorter than six words? Yeah, they can. Because metaphors are the shortest definition of a story. Right. Because sh- sh- metaphors, they create images in your head. And to those images, you have associations and memories and those create emotions. So if I were to say, hey, have you seen the boys' room? Oh, it looks like havoc in there. Or you go, have you seen the boys' room? It looks like an absolute tornado going on in there. Okay, so the second would bring out much more emotion and associations in you. So yeah, stories don't have to, it's not, it's not this complicated thing. Just look at it as a story. You create visuals in, a, in, in, in the head, in the brain of the people listening, and those, those create, or they, they are associated to memories and they create emotions.
0: Yeah, it's that transfer of emotions and you don't have to be verbose to do it as you just described. I think a lot of times, exactly that. When we hear storytelling, we tend to overthink it and overanalyze it and try to add all this fluff to it and overcomplicate it. And really being more willing to share and practice and look for opportunities to share those daily moments, uh, especially the ones you've categorized, paying attention to the audience. Are you evoking that emotion? Seeing that signaling back uh, is a great way to to strengthen this skill set. Mm-hmm. The last question I have for a lot of us Mm -hmm. who give keynotes or or have to present our ideas, I think we spend a lot of time, as we talked about, on the slides and then prepping for the presentation. (laughs) But the one piece you can't really control is the audience response and questions after your Mm -hmm. presentation. What is your mindset? How do you go into your presentations to handle those questions? Because we do know that sometimes the audience can throw some tough questions our way.
2: Yeah, Okay, so whenever I build a keynote or, a, or an entire course for that sake, uh, I uh, I always look into what kind of objections can the audience come up with. And then I build in a, I don't know what you call that, a pre-objection? Well,
1: handling objections. Yeah.
2: So to hand, yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I then ask myself, how can I handle that objection? I build that into my keynote so that the objection never can never happen. It never happens. Uh, so when you listen to my keynotes, they are usually at least like 99.5% bulletproof. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: if they do come, or if you know that they will be coming, see to that you induce serotonin and endorphins into your audience, because that will reduce the likeliness of questions like that popping up at the end. The biggest mistake you can do is end your presentation with questions. You should always own your ending. And an ending has three steps. The first step should be questions. So you go, before I summarize, are there any questions? We have four minutes for questions. Uh. Then you do the summary, and then you do the grand finale. The grand finale is super important because you need to inflict emotion into their brain, go, (laughs) (laughs) but But the trick here is to go, before I summarize, are there any questions? We have four minutes. Now you control the entire agenda. Because after four minutes, you can go, okay, time's up. We, uh, we have to continue now. And then it's perfectly okay. If you haven't said that, it is rude to go in and stop them. But now right. you have the full authority to do so.
0: And of course, that gives you an opportunity if for whatever reason you may have fumbled an answer or not felt good about a response to a question to come back in the summarization and in the grand finale and fix that. So you're not leaving that presentation on a low note or the audience might be doubting your understanding or your viewpoint because of a question you were posed. Exactly. exactly. So, And are there key steps in the summary? And it sounds like there are important pieces to the grand finale as we get to the grand finale of this interview. What are you looking yeah. for to summarize? And, and what is that last piece in the grand finale?
2: Well, I love ending whatever... Keynote presentation I do with a story. So I, I told you earlier that I have this really, really high injection dopamine stories. So I'd like to end with that, if that's okay with you. Fantastic. I just love giving content and knowledge to everyone that can listen and, and need, who I need of it. So just look at my three TED Talks. That's an awesome summary. Learn from them. But if, if there's anything in storytelling, it is what I just said previously. And that is just get down there and practice the four steps in the storytelling structure in your every single day life. That'll make a tremendous difference. And my third point, because you should only have three things in a summary, not four, not five, but three. So this is the third and the last one. And this is the one that will make you most popular of all in any party, at any dinner, with your kids as a parent, as I said. And that is the spontaneous storytelling exercise we did. Give the person, give your kid, six years old, a place and an object. Let them, tell, let them tell the story. And then boom, another object, boom, another object, boom, another object. You'll be rolling down on the floor. You'll be laughing. You'll be having such a good <laughs> time. You can do this in a taxi. You can do it on a bus. You can do it wherever you want to. And every single time you do it, you teach them how to do storytelling and you teach yourself to do storytelling. So those three things would be core summaries okay. for me. Are you waiting for the grand finale now? Or
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> <Now laughs> well, we are. Where's the silence again? <laughs> You got us hanging on the edge of our seat here. Okay, so the story goes like this. This is the story that changed my perspective on storytelling, and it just did so forever. And it's an old tale. And as with old tales, they began a long, long, long time ago. This is a Jewish tale. And uh, it takes place in the Middle East, in a small, small village. And at the edge of this small, small village, there's a small little beautiful house. And in this small, beautiful house lived two women. And these two women were the most beautiful women you can ever imagine. Now, these two women were sisters. And uh, the one sister's name was Story, and the other sister's name was Truth. Now, there was a inherent problem with them thinking that they were beautiful because they were constantly arguing who was the most beautiful and this particular day this argument grew into a growl and they started fighting on who was the most beautiful and they couldn't agree and so they stopped and they say hey we cannot agree who is the most beautiful of us two let's have a contest let's walk down the middle street of our town and see who attracts most attention so they went to bed the morning rose they walked up to the street and they stood in front of the of uh, of the street and then uh, truth said hey can i go first sister and story said yes of course so truth she 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 stood firmly she looked down the street and she boosted her self confidence and she started walking down as she walked down you could see the kids playing football they ran away You can see the families who are having picnics, they quickly put all their food back in the basket and they walked away. The people behind the blinds, they closed them. At at the top of the roofs, people, the children, they walked back. They didn't want to see what they saw. When truth came to the end of the road, she asked herself, why am I not beautiful? Why are people not attracted to me? And she thought... Is there any other way I can become even more attractive? And she came up with this brilliant idea. And she unbuttoned her cloak and she let it drop. And there she was, entirely naked. And now with renewed self-confidence, she walked up the street. But instead of people gathering around her, the few that were left, they fled. She came up to her sister and she said, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. But I didn't attract anyone. And then Story said, don't worry, sister, let me try. Let's see what happens. Story stood there. She stood. She gazed down the street. She built herself with self-confidence. And then she walked down. And this time you could see the kids coming back with their footballs and they were playing on the street. You could see the children and the families. They're sitting down and having their picnics again. And the people behind the blinds, they opened them up. And the kids on the rooftops, they looked down. And Story came to the end of the road. She turned around and she walked back. When she came back, to her, her sister, Truth, said, I'm sorry, sister, I am sorry. You are the most beautiful. You are the one who attracts them all. I have lost. I'm sorry. You are the most beautiful. And then Story said, no, that's not entirely true. It doesn't have to be true. The thing is, though, that... People are not attracted by the truth. People are definitely not attracted by the naked truth. What people are attracted to is a story. But what people love more than anything is a true story. So, Story Tutu to, to took her cloak and wrapped it around the shoulders of us, her sister. And this time, Truth walked down the street with a cloak of story. And every single person in the entire village and every nearby village flocked around her to watch the most beautiful thing we know, the most attractive thing, which is a true story. Because isn't that true that every single time you watch a movie and it comes up based on a true story, your entire brain ignites in a way that it doesn't if it's just fictional. That my friends is a great story and the end.
0: Thank you for sharing and, and all these amazing storytelling tips. Where can our audience find more about your university and, and learn how to become such an amazing storyteller like yourself?
2: Just, uh, just head to jpuniversity.com and uh, you have a full, full course on uh, storytelling and every single signal substance and how you inject that in other human beings um, and the 110 steps and you can learn it all there. Right on. Thank you, guys.
0: Wow. Digging into the science behind storytelling and evoking emotions to have those neurological responses, how to manage the neurotransmitters that are so important to our psychology. It was a fascinating discussion.
1: It's amazing. And it gave me so many ideas
0: and in different ways to use storytelling that I never thought of before. I'm excited to play that game with some friends and a few drinks, maybe some glasses of wine. Now, if you're new to the show and you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, Head on over to theartofcharm.com slash toolbox to get our favorite episodes. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of networking, persuasion, and influence, such as body language, eye contact, and more. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Los Angeles, and we'd love for you to join us. They're both for men and women. Details on those at theartofcharm.com.
1: And don't forget about the Art of Charm challenge. Go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking and connecting skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free, it's unisex, and it's a great way to get the ball rolling and get some forward momentum. And we'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I had mentioned earlier in the show, which includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right away. This will make you a better connector, a better networker, and a better thinker. That's at thearticharmcom slash challenge. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you go on over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast? It would really mean the world to us and it would help others find our show. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denham at Cast Media Studios and sunny downtown Hollywood. Until next week, I'm
0: Johnny. And I'm AJ. Have a great week.